Hey folks, welcome back as usual. For this show, we've got something a little bit different. Um, Bill Taylor was the uh, tournament director for the FLW Tour for a long time. He worked, you know, at a variety of levels with FLW before then. Um, He's seen a lot. Uh, And he retired, well, I guess either last year or the year before. And he and I hopped on the phone. I've fished tournaments with him. I feel like I know Bill pretty well. Um, And uh, he and I hopped on the phone and talked for kind of a while about his career, how he got started in it. Um, And we even kind of touched on some rule stuff and a little bit of uh, current news uh, that may or may not be walleye related. (laughs) Um, Just because I really couldn't let a tournament tournament director go by without asking a little about that. But um, anyway, it's not necessarily like some kind of in-depth history show. It's not going to teach you how to be a tournament director, but I think it's a pretty interesting interview with someone who has been around, you know, pro bass fishing for really a pretty long time um, and has been around it from the early years when Operation Bass and FLW were kind of just getting off the ground. Um, So anyway, here is the one and only Bill Taylor. Alrighty, we're joined now by Bill Taylor, a former FLW Tour Tournament Director, uh, Tackle Warehouse Pro Circuit Tournament Director. Bill, you've pretty much done a little bit of almost everything on the tournament side of things um, at FLW and then later on MLF. Uh, Thanks for coming on, man. Oh, no, oh, it's my pleasure, Jody. Uh, always glad to visit with you. Uh, I think you and I both have a lot in common. That is how much uh, passion and love we have for the sport of bass fishing, <laughs> especially tournament fishing. So uh, thanks for having me. Yeah, we uh, we did quit that one tournament at like midnight that was supposed to go till three in the morning or something. I'm going to be honest, I'm not much of a night fisherman. But yeah, I don't <laughs> think I know anyone else who fishes or fished as much as you did just about who like actually also worked in fishing uh, well i guess that's part of my game just uh you know i've uh i've always worked so i could fish uh, and so uh when i got started at it uh, it was just a desire to always try to get on the water and, and i continue that to this day i just i just love going whether it's night or day and uh, i love competition and I just love being out there, uh, whether it's by myself or with one of my good friends. But uh, it's just been a part of what I've done since I was a little guy. No doubt. Um, for folks that I guess don't know you and don't know what your what your job was, sort of how you got there. How did you? I, I guess give me a little bit of backstory, like when you started to fish, and I know. Uh, you know, you were a UPS driver, like you did other things. Your whole life purpose was not, I'm going to be a tournament director. Tell me how a little bit of that before time story. Well, okay. That's a good one. And, uh, you know, I've told certain people this and, but it's, uh, it all evolved because my involvement in, uh, in the uh, tournament management positions was it all evolved uh, through my connection with uh, the guys at Operation Bass, uh, as it was known in the beginning, uh, 
And I pitched that very first tournament uh, that they ever put together, Mike Whitaker. And in about 1984, we were at an event on Bell Hollow, and uh, Mike Whitaker, the, the owner of the company at that time, uh, was looking to expand, uh, and he had said there's a major sponsor coming aboard, and uh, he'd like to know if I'd be interested in uh, becoming involved in it. And uh, at that point in time, I had... Uh, about 14 or 15 years in with the United Parcel Service, and my mind was pretty uh, pretty set in itself, meaning that uh, I knew they had a good retirement. I knew that uh, it was a good company. I knew that it gave me a good income. And so I, I politely declined and told him that uh, uh, my old buddy might be interested in it, that my old buddy being Charlie Evans. And so uh, he... Uh, had Charlie to come down for interview, and uh, the rest is history. And Charlie was hired. And uh, we move on into about 1988 or eight, 1989, I guess it was, and uh, Charlie and I had been fishing a tournament for the weekend, and I asked him what he had to do when he went back uh, to Benton uh, to work. And he said, well, I've got to hire a, a couple of uh, tournament assistants. And uh, and uh, that intrigued me a little bit, and so I asked him what that meant. And he said, well, that'll mean uh, we need someone to travel to the events and, and drive a van and haul the equipment, pull a boat up, and and work uh, uh, the Mountain Division, the Hoosier Division, and the Michigan Division. And uh, I said, hey, that sounds interesting. I might be interested in that. And to make a long story short, uh, my daughter was just uh, graduating that 1989 from high school uh, and going to college and I said well that'll help subsidize that and so uh, I got started that way I accepted a part-time position in 1989 as a, an assistant to the tournament director was set up and and uh, weigh-in weigh-ins and uh, it moved forward from there I did that for uh, almost six years but she got into graduate got out of graduate school and uh, I told Charlie and Kathy that I was going to quit and uh, so I could fish more. And uh, Charlie quickly, um, quickly as Charlie always is, and, uh, with whenever he has an answer and when he wants something, he said, yeah, but we've got something new coming. And he said, something that I want you involved in. And he said, confidentially, we're going to be starting a uh, – going to be starting a new circuit it's going to be a pro circuit it's going to be uh, a televised event uh, we've got people uh, uh that's going to produce our tv show and we'll be on espn too and it's a big deal and uh from there uh, i thought about it and he told me what it was being involved with and so uh i said count me in and so uh that's kind of how that part of the puzzle come together so uh uh for, uh, I guess, about four years there. I still worked uh, uh, at UPS. Uh, I retired in uh, 2000, and I took all my vacation during that time frame to attend the events, and uh, eventually I, I retired. And uh, so uh, that, uh, that in itself gave me a lot of experience out there with the professional side of the ball game, so to speak, and... Uh, it wasn't long, six months or so after uh, I had retired, that um, I was offered a full-time position as tournament director. Uh, we had a 
permit director and had some movement among the staff at that time, uh, you know, with, through expansion and everything. So uh, there was an opportunity there, and Kathy and Charlie called me up and said, hey, we want you to have this job, and will you take it? And so I decided, and my wife and I decided, oh, yeah, uh, I think we will. So uh, immediately after six months, I went from working full-time back to working full-time again. So uh had a six-month vacation, you might speak, there. And so... Uh, the rest is kind of, as they all say and goes, it was, the rest is history. I guess so. When you, so when you first started fishing Operation Bass Tournaments, you know, I assume you tournaments mm-hmm. your whole life. How old were you when you first started fishing the Operation Bass stuff, and how old were you when you, like, I guess, first started working them then? Well, let's see. I guess uh, I retired at 52 years old, so that was in, uh, in uh, 2000. Um, from UPS, uh, I guess the very first event was held in 1980. So, uh, uh, that would have put me about 33, 34 years old at that point in time. I started tournament fishing and my very first tournament, actually I was late to bloomer kind of, so to speak. Well, I mean, you had a basketball <laughs> career too, right? Oh yeah. I played <laughs> basketball and, and, uh, that was probably my dream game uh until i started fishing but right out of college then i started uh fishing with a friend and uh uh started tournament fishing 1974 uh couldn't help rem- uh i, I want to throw this one out there so in 1970 right out of college i got drafted into the army uh one of the very first people drafted under the lottery system and uh i've said it many times and i'll say it again on your podcast um uh, a lot of the people that were drafted during that time frame, fled to Canada, or refused to go to the draft. And so I thought nothing else about accepting that draft uh, position as a as a soldier. And I uh, went into the uh, U.S. Army in 1970, and I spent two years there. And once out of the Army, I went back to work at UPS and uh, – Started fishing pretty regularly, and but I'd become a member of BASS during that time frame while I was uh, in the Army. And I got my magazine. My wife sent the magazine to me, and uh, I, I just read about the stories of the tournaments, and and I couldn't wait to get back home to where I could fish tournaments and uh, joined the Bass Club in 1973 and uh, one that uh, a couple of guys and I found here in Danville. And uh, we evolved from there. Okay. So did you ever, uh, like, did you ever serve overseas, or did you ever actually deploy? Um, yeah, well, oh, yeah, uh, I did. And, and, and to be honest with you, I, I refused to kind of talk about that a whole lot because I was away from my family. I had an eight-year or eight-month-old daughter. Uh, our daughter, Annette, was eight months old when I went in. It was a traumatic time in my a life and and it's pretty pretty difficult for me to talk about but my, my dad died during that time frame at 49 years old and uh, left four siblings uh at home with my mom and uh it's a period in my life that a lot happened okay uh you know Sounds i graduated like from college my daughter was born that year i got drafted in the army uh, uh the following year my dad died and so uh uh, I did serve overseas uh, uh, as a, uh, a medic. I was assigned a special unit. I was a medevac helicopter uh, flight medic. So uh, with that being said, 
uh, it was one of those deals where I look back at it and, and think, well, I would never, ever, ever trade anything I'd ever done for that part of my life, but it's one that I wouldn't recommend to any young person uh, uh, to consider unless he was true or she was true blue to uh, serving because uh, it takes a, a special individual to uh, uh, be a any kind of servant to the general public, whether it's the U.S. Armed Forces or whether it's a, a police department or ATM or whatever it is. Uh, it takes a special person to hold those positions. But no, no uh, I'm proud of the fact that I'm a veteran. Yeah, well, thank you for your service. And I didn't really, I guess I didn't, I mean, I've spent a lot of time with you, and I ha- we haven't talked about it, so I guess maybe I should have known that you didn't like to talk about it, but I'm sorry well, for that's fine. diving no, that's in. that's fine. That's fine. No, Jody, that is fine. And, and uh, it just, uh, it's hard to explain, okay? Other than that, uh, yeah, I proudly served and, and uh, had a good career. As, as a matter of fact, whenever I was ready to get out uh, back in 1972, uh, they were going to an all-volunteer army, and uh, uh, not to brag about it or anything, but I was offered a $10,000 re-enlistment bonus in 1972. Now, that's a lot of money mm-hmm. because they were trying to get uh, certified uh, volunteers into the military at that point in time. The Vietnam War was easing down, and, and I seriously considered that, too. And that was a lot of money back in 1972, believe me. Oh, yeah. Uh, but... Uh, but uh, anyhow, we got good armed forces now. Uh, I'm proud that I served, and uh, I, uh, I'm very, very proud that my brother served as well, and uh, was highly decorated uh, in the uh, U.S. And he also was drafted in 1967. So um, uh, had uh, several uh, really, really close friends. My next door neighbor was killed in action in Vietnam. Uh, I graduated from high school with five young men that served and 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 give their lives. Um, uh, one was one of my basketball teammates, uh, and uh, it's just been it's it's one of those things that you kind of put back in the back of your mind and say, well, I did that, but uh, let's move on, and we don't we don't go back there very often. Okay, you came back, and you kind of then like. I guess that was when you kind of got into bass fishing then, right? You weren't, well, or yeah, got into tournaments. Actually, then. it was. Uh, yeah, it was, uh, I had started uh, bass fishing, uh, well, I grew up fishing farm ponds around my community there, but uh, I really fell in love with Lake Cumberland because I was so intrigued by the big water and uh, all that, and I lived about 30 minutes or 30 miles from Lake Cumberland at that point in time. And one of my close friends that I went to high school with and actually grew up in our neighborhood, uh, his dad had a small boat with a 10 horsepower outboard. And uh, he and I began to uh, hook up and go to the headwaters on Lake Cumberland. And then uh, we, we, <laughs> we kind of grew from that one and, uh, uh, while we were in college, and uh, we would uh, sneak off in the spring and go to Norris Lake and fish some. And uh, and uh, it's funny that uh, an old World War II uh, veteran uh, who was disabled, wounded in the war, World War II, uh, was a big big time fisherman. And uh, he was taking me and uh, my buddy Gerald Robinson fishing uh, on night trips, and that's kind of how that evolved. Uh, 
So as a as a young upcoming angler, I started out as a night fisherman on the lakes and uh, fished only in the nighttime from uh, May all the way through into early November. And then in the wintertime, we didn't do anything except sit at home and watch ball games and play sports and things like that. So it was kind of different than these guys get started now. Yeah, you missed the best time of year to fish for smallmouth, just about. <laughs> I know. I, I look back on that and I think to myself, well, you big dummy, well, weren't you? But now I will say this, too. Uh, I'll never forget the first time I ever caught a fish on a jig was in uh, uh, late February. Uh, the weather had got pretty, and uh, I had bought, I had bought, now this had to be in 1973, I believe it was, or four. I was already out of the Army. Um, and uh, on a weekend, I had a 18-horsepower a uh, Johnson outboard. And at that time, you could rent a small boat for about $10 or less a, a day. And I rented a boat on Beaver, uh, at Beaver um, Resort, Beaver Lake, or I'm sorry, it's on Lake Cumberland, but Beaver Creek Resort. And uh, it was real cold. I froze to death. And I went out and I had a an old doll fly. It was a hair jig made back in the late 60s and early 70s. And uh, I put a trailer on it and I caught a six pound largemouth to become my first fish ever on a jig. And I guess I got hooked on the jig fishing as early as 1973. And uh, that's kind of how I, I kind of got started with uh, with the wintertime fishing. I found out pretty quick after that that if I wanted to really catch some big ones, I, I went in, in the wintertime. So, so I was one of the very first people in my area that really fished in the wintertime, to be honest with you. And um, I read all these articles about the guys in Arkansas fishing in, um, in winter and cold weather and uh, how good the big fish were. Uh, bit then and so uh i still love that's my favorite time of the year to fish is winter still to this day all right cool what um what were you what were you, what tackle were you using like back then were you what well, did you have bait casters was it all spinning oh, stuff yeah. oh like, yeah no 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 uh most people most reels early on were pretty crude okay uh even even as late as a uh uh well, I feel like even some stuff way. in the '90s was not very good. Oh, well, now, but uh, maybe a Abu big Garcia, step up from Abu Garcia hit the markets uh, in the U.S. Uh, with a really, really high-end reel about 1967, 68 uh, in that time frame. Now, I'm sure that there were uh, they were available uh, to people uh, before that, but my very first one was a, a bait casting reel was um, um, a red uh, Abu Garcia uh, baitcaster. Before that, I used spinning reels, uh, Johnson Sentry reels, uh, um, Zebco spinning reels, but not an open-faced reel. There was very few open-faced reels at that time that uh, I could handle, let's put it that way. Uh, rods uh, were very cheap. I can remember when the first rod I ever bought was... Uh, uh, actually, a, a very, very uh, high-end uh, bait casting five-foot little bait casting rod, and uh, I think I paid fifteen bucks for it. Uh, the very first Abu Garcia reel that I bought, I paid thirty-eight ninety-five for it, and I thought I died and went to heaven. My wife at that time, uh, she wasn't aware of the fact that I'd bought that reel, but I'd saved up and 
and uh, bought that reel and only had one. I only had one rod and one reel for a couple of years, actually, to be honest with you. And um, my tackle consisted mostly of bomber crankbaits, uh, a couple of hellbenders, but uh, I bought every jig that I could find, and I bought uh, every spinnerbait that I could find. And so mostly my fishing consisted of uh, jigs and spinnerbait from day one when it went when I went to fish in big water and especially when I started fishing tournaments. Uh, I guess the biggest turnaround in my career was uh, whenever I joined the Bass Club, and, and uh, uh, the I'll call them the uh, uh, letter alphabet uh, baits. That was the uh, Rebel Super R's and the Boss of Big B's and uh, all those. When they first come out, I saw one on the ship. It was a brown-colored uh, Super R. It was made by Rebel. It was brown and had black stripes, and I'll never forget it. I bought that bait, paid a dollar ninety-eight for it, and uh, when when most tackle was seventy-eight cents or a dollar for a, a bomber, I okay, paid wow. double and got this bait because I thought, well, that thing looks like a, a, a chub minnow, and I bought it in the first cast I made in Beaver Creek uh, with it on Lake Cumberland. I caught a smallmouth. Uh, four pounds, and I was really hooked on crankbaits there for a few years. So, so uh, okay. I went through the gamut, so to speak, on all that, getting started early. Well, it's interesting because you know mega basses are way more expensive than a buck ninety-eight, but I guess <laughs> oh, you still yeah. had to pay for the good stuff back then, apparently. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah, it was uh, it was hard to get. Um, you know, I still have an original uh, big old. Uh, bait that uh, was given to me by a guy that uh, um, from down in Knoxville, Tennessee. Of course, he's been dead for a, a long time and everything, but he had one and he gave it to me late in my career. It's probably 84, 85 that he gave that to me. But uh, the big old was the, uh, the bait, the balsa bait or the wood bait uh, that changed uh, crankbait fishing and, and the paint jobs and all that. And so that had a lot to do with companies like Rebel and Bagley's and, and those big uh, high-end companies that uh, built lots of crankbaits. Uh, they copied a lot of the paint jobs off of some of those early-on uh, handmade baits. Hmm. And you, like, in this sort of, I guess, early time period for you, you were winning a lot of tournaments. Like, you were kind of... Well, yeah. Right? Well, well, did, when, yeah. when was that? Because I know that either you have the record for bfl wins or had it at one point in time right yeah well yes uh i did have it one time but certainly uh people like andy morgan come along and uh but uh actually i i guess um i've started doing i've improved my fishing over the years okay but in 1978, uh, I'd entered a couple of tournaments. There was an organization called uh, the Kentucky Bass Association, and it was made up of all the um, bass clubs across the state. And uh, they had two events a year. And um, one of them was on Lake Cumberland, and the other one was on Lake Barkley. And uh, they had one in the spring and one in the fall. And so... Uh, it wasn't like a circuit. It was just like a, I guess you would just call it where all these bass clubs could participate 
uh, in a big tournament, they uh, come through and they had officers and things like that. You didn't even have to pay a membership to belong to it. You just had to be in your bass club. And uh, I got lucky and won uh, on, on Barkley Lake, 1978, Kentucky Bass Association, uh, in a two-day tournament over there. And so uh, from that, uh, then I decided to enter a few more tournaments and um, uh, entered some BASS tournaments in 78, 79, and 80, all the way up to about 1984, I fished those. But then I heard uh, about a boat show where a guy was going to be there uh, by the name of Mike Whitaker and talked about starting a, a local tournament trail that was good for the working men and women and uh boy it intrigued me and his first tournament was 1980 and i got started in those and uh, finished second in the very first one so i, I was one of the very first uh, people in the industry for many many years that still uh that fished that very first tournament with uh, the old operation bass and then uh, got lucky in 1981 uh I won their end of the year championship and went on to win 14 events then uh, and held the record for a while to John Wright and some of those guys as I had to back off once I worked part time and didn't have the opportunity to fish as many events. But I won my last one in 1987 on uh, Cherokee Lake. So uh, that was my last win on that uh, on those circuits. So the last 20 years, uh, I haven't fished hardly any BFLs or anything like that. I did touch base with a few of the uh, um, old uh, we'll still call them the uh, Toyota series but they were the uh, mid-level FLW series at that time and so uh, unfortunately I didn't get to fish as many tournaments uh, in the last 20 years as I wanted to but I made up for it this, this uh, last couple of years yeah and this year you fished two so I and uh, you didn't get any wins but I think next year could be the year well, I'm going to fish a division of the BFL next year full. Um, I had a lot going on. Once I retired, believe it or not, uh, Jody, I spent uh, two months nearly just trying to get everything in my <laughs> in my uh, life back together as far as uh, insurance, uh, uh, getting internet service at home I never had because I depended on uh, everything that uh, Major League Fishing had to offer for me. And I had to buy a vehicle, I had to buy a boat, I had all that furnished, uh, had a great job, had a great career, I had gone it. And this, uh, uh, once I got back into it, I went to Lake Martin to fish a, um, a BFL there. Uh, unfortunately, didn't do any good uh, there, uh, but I had a ball. And then I went to Dale Hollow and fished one of the BFLs there and uh, Caught a lot of fish, just couldn't get the keeper size I needed. My little co-owner guy finished in the top 10, so I was around some fish. Uh, but I still had a lot of other things going on that I had to get uh, straightened out. Um, I owned a little farm up northern Kentucky. Uh, had a lot of work to do up there this year and uh, get get everything back in, in, in place that I wanted it to be like while I couldn't get it done. And so I spent a lot of time doing that. And then uh, I've uh, started fishing uh, just weekend tournaments locally here. So, uh, But next year I am going to fish a, a complete level of uh, BFL. And I'm going to I'm gonna fish a couple, three uh, Toyota series next year as well. All right, cool. Well, I uh, probably won't see you at the BFL events, but 
who knows? I'd like to like to say <laughs> hey at, at uh, one of the Toyota Series events. That'd be fun. Uh, uh, well, it, as I said earlier, it's always fun to talk fish with Jody White because uh, I can remember when you first started. I I said, why in the world are you working in Minnesota when you could transfer and be working out of the Benton, Kentucky office where I'd have a fishing buddy in <laughs> Benton on Kentucky Lake? So I was tickled to death when you moved down there and. Uh, I want to congratulate you on your career to this point, too, Jody. You're one of the best ever out there in the industry. Say what they want to about my buddy Rob Newell. Uh, if you're not as good, you're right on his tail. So uh, uh, you guys are the best in the industry, you and Rob, okay? Well, uh, Bill, I, I appreciate it, but we're we're going to keep talking about you for the rest of this show. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, but um, it's about a bunch of other people. So that's oh, kind of my yeah. next that's kind of my next question because you have you got to meet like some absolute characters through your entire career and you made some i'm sure lifelong friends what uh is there anyone who like the first time you met them you were like man i'm not sure about this person and then you know five or six years later it was you're just like would watch someone come through boat check and be like, man, I'm so glad to see this him again. You know what I mean? Like, oh. did you have any people, folks like that where you're like, I don't know. Oh, and yes. it turned around on you. Oh yes. Oh yes. Well, Oh, absolutely. That's a good point. You know, I've met so many, so many great people, not just great professional anglers, but good people. You know, I remember, the first time I met Jerry McInnes, okay, uh, I'd watched him on TV, and uh, we become very close friends uh, through working with Jerry. Uh, uh, you know, uh, I really understood where he come from, where he how he'd got to where he was. Uh, I admired him. Uh, uh, one of the great guys in the sport, Jerry McInnes. Another one was is when we first started and my first connection. Roland Martin, uh, bless his heart. Uh, Roland, for most people, Roland just had so much energy. And uh, but when he come through boat check, he was a lost cat. I mean, he was like a, a he was like a stray dog trying to find a new home. Uh, he, he didn't know how to go through boat check. But he, uh, I just gained so much respect for Roland. And uh, he and I, uh, you know, talk pretty regularly on the phone to this day because uh, my connection with him there. And then I met people like Larry Nixon, one of the best ambassadors for the sport ever, ever out there. Uh, and uh, it, it just it goes on. And I'll tell you, uh, I'll tell you some another uh, fisherman. I'll tell you how things work like that. You brought up a good point. So I, uh, we got a, uh, and most people probably don't even know this professional, but he's one of the great guys out there, and that's uh, Kurt Mitchell. Kurt Mitchell went to uh, one of my friends and said, I don't know why Bill Taylor hates me so much. And I said, uh, I found out about it. And I said, I went to Kurt Mitchell and I said, why do you think that I hate you? I said, I admire you. I, say, I said, I, I just try to make sure you do it the right way. I'm not trying to be mean to you. I'm trying to help you. And so people like Kurt then listened to what I had to say. And, and uh, you can see how Kurt has evolved and become one of the top anglers in the country. And it's not just Kurt Mitchell, but there's many of them out there, many of them. That, uh, uh, I remember when Michael Neal first started. His dad, one of the great guys in, in, uh, that I've ever met, was, uh, was Mike Neal, uh, who uh, tried to 
uh, make sure that his uh, son Michael um, got what he deserved in the sport. And and I finally I told Michael Mike Michael's dad Mike I said look let Michael do his talking for him let him ask these questions let him learn about the sponsorship uh, process. And I said until he learns that. You know, he's just going to be another guy out there on the water. And look what Michael Neal has turned into, one of the best anglers ever. And to see those guys listen, uh, that means a lot to me, Jody. And I'm sure you went through the same thing with a lot of them. I know that it's easy to get connected to certain people out there, but you get connected to those that listen to you and respect you. And uh, I hope with anything that I accomplished in this sport that, that people respected me for uh, uh, not not the, not my work ethic or not what I did as an angler, but, but how I handled and talked to them in different situations, uh, you know, where they were having financial issues or, or whether it was family issues. Uh, it's amazing how many people talk to me about those situations and it gave me great uh, feeling to uh, know that uh, maybe I helped somebody in that category. And so that's, yeah, it's, that's, uh, it's, it's been a great ride, Jody. No doubt. Talking, speaking of like, you know, uh, accomplishments, I feel like, I, I don't want to say bass fishing doesn't need innovation, but at the same time, we've kind of been doing the same thing in, in some respects for a while. Is there anything that, through the course of your career, like you either helped introduce or had an idea that's like still sticking. Like it could be as simple as, well, we do boat check different than when we started and it's better. Or, you know, the, uh, I remember when we first started using the, uh, pumps to fill way bags with water, like that's actually like yeah. to go to bring them down to the boats. Like that's actually really yeah. smart, you know? Like, is yeah. there anything like that that you had a hand in that you felt like uh, is well, going to affect yeah, things I, for a long time to come? Well, I, well, yes, yes, there is. There's a, there's quite a few of those, but but the one one that changed uh, things probably as much as anything was we were all sitting around talking about this and talking about that at meetings and things. And at that point in time, I was just part time, uh, didn't have a lot of input. But I suggested to Charlie Evans and uh, one day, uh, why don't we do two separate tournaments? Uh, why don't we let the co-anglers fish against the co-anglers and the boaters fish against the boaters? And uh, he stopped and thought about it just for a few minutes. And he said, how would that work? And we talked about it. And uh, uh, from that came uh, our format of the uh, boater, no boater. I was still fishing the events uh, part-time at that point in time. As a matter of fact, my, my co-angler won the very first one in the Mount Division uh, as a co-angler when we had uh, when we first started that. So that was one item. Another one was is, uh, Doug Chester and myself were talking one day about some things, and pretty simple stuff. Um, IT department is just getting involved with uh you know with with everything that had to do with uh, with the tournament organization and i said why can't we send pairings and things like that by text message and he said oh yeah we can he said we can and he he got to working on that and uh, uh that's that was when we first started doing digital stuff with uh 
getting information out to our anglers. And Doug Chester, who's behind the scenes big time, uh, got all that stuff up and running. And so just little suggestions that I thought about it during those periods uh, like that just stands out. But there's a lot of different ones. Uh, you know, I was involved in the first uh, of the boats and truck wraps uh, uh, out there. As a matter of fact, uh, I'll never forget this one, and I've told it many times. Uh, I was instructed to uh, check on some getting some trailers wrapped, and uh, I called uh, uh, around a little bit. And at that time, it was hard to find anyone anyone that did it. But NASCAR was involved in all that, and I called uh, um, a company over in uh, Charlotte, North Carolina, and uh, they said, "Well, we'd like to get involved in it. However, uh, uh, you know, we're so filled and." book solid with NASCAR stuff but said uh, you know call back in a month or so and if we've got anything we can help you with we will well uh, they uh, decided to help do one of our weigh-in trailers and six months later uh, we got involved with uh, getting our uh, boats wrapped and uh, I called them back about that and and uh, set up an appointment and they come over and look at their boats and and then started making their drawings and uh they got back in they got into wrapping boats and helping us at the ranger and uh those things like that just turned loose and you see all the wrapped equipment out there now so i was i was kind of uh bottom line uh, bottom feeder in that part of the process as well so uh um you know that's that's another thing. It took a lot of work. It, it really took a lot of work from a lot of people uh, in little situations like that. It don't seem big now, uh, but back then it was. It was big. Okay. Yeah, and weren't the wraps, weren't they painted on at first? Like, Well, no, that's a good question. No, yeah, what if they were? Okay, let's just take uh, the bass boats. Okay, we were the, our company was the very first one to identify boat colors with uh, sponsor colors like Fuji, for instance, uh, and 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 uh, and all of those Kellogg's and all of their colors. Yep. Uh, so the boats built were built. So Randy Hopper and his team, along with Forrest and all of them at Ranger, they built the boat to meet the colors. Like uh, Land of Lakes was a yellow boat. Fuji boat was their green uh, boats. Uh, Everstart was the red and black, and they built those boats that way and uh built into the fiberglass and uh, but they found out though that it was awful hard to sell a bright green fuji boat or a, a bright yellow land of lakes boat or, a uh, land or something like that yeah whatever <laughs> yeah so anyhow then uh, that's kind of how the the wrap started uh, watching the nascar uh trailers pull in and things like that and i know charlie hoover was big on that and early on and charlie evans as well but uh um, uh, you know, I got involved in it because I had to find the companies that would do it for us. So uh, once that got going, then uh, uh, we had it got so big within our, our company that they actually hired uh, Aaron Hall, who, bless his heart, is no longer with us. But Aaron, uh, he oversaw all the boat routes for our sponsors beginning there probably in the early 2000s. Uh, so... Uh, he he was big involved in that and did a great job with that as well. So, 
So anyhow, then I guess I guess another one was, uh, you know, everything's about on the water live coverage now. You know, uh, you're getting whether it's you guys out on the water or whether it's uh, live TV out there with people fishing. But I'll never forget uh, again, uh, old co-worker Doug Chester, who you worked with as well, was instructed by Charlie Evans to uh, try to figure out a way to. Uh, record and and uh, live stream it via texting or whatever they were doing uh, with on the water coverage and we had that thing they had a little fanny pack we had it before anyone did uh, and uh, the sales service at that time was relatively poor plus the little backpack that we had to use um, it looked like crap to be honest with you but it, it <laughs> but it worked it it, it it got it was started the process of the uh, all the equipment needed and again doug chester bless his heart right there today at uh, major league fishing one of the good guys behind the scenes he finally uh, come up with a, a better plan and finally uh, we uh, we got that thing going so uh I was involved in a lot of that on the water i uh, they put one in my boat and, and, uh, and i could leave the office and go and fish and they recorded and made sure it worked and did this for audio and did that. And I actually would lose a fish and, and uh, use the F word every now and then when I did lose one. And so we had to figure out how to keep guys from doing that as well. So uh, we learned a lot just trial and error. But uh, I, that was a big part of something that early on that I really, really enjoyed uh, that process. A lot of work, again, a lot of work. Yeah, it, it seems like... Obviously, I wouldn't say that, you know, FLW perfected live bass fishing. Uh, it seems like we're kind of all at a point where it's, we sort of know how to do it at this point. But definitely a lot of the early, um, like a lot of the early innovation happened at FLW, which is like was cool to see. Yeah. Oh, yes. I, I, you know, uh I looked one time, uh, just uh, the last five years, or la- I'll say the last eight or nine years, and I looked at all the, I watched Bassmasters, and I watched the Elites, and I watched the uh, uh, growth of the Major League Fishing from their um, uh, start-up all the way through, and watched our anglers. And I looked at the um, Bassmaster Classic, I looked at the Forest Wood Cup at that time, our end-of-the-year championship, which, by the way, was the first million-dollar payoff in the history of the sport. Yeah, baby. And, uh, yeah, absolutely one of the best things. I, I crowd my eyes out that first one, uh, as a matter of fact. But what, what I'm saying is, is I look at those rosters, and every one of the rosters said the same thing. Eighty-five percent of all professional anglers had started their careers with Operation Bass, FLW, and now Major League Fishing. It continues to this day that uh, our company, and I'll still call it our company because I respect Major League Fishing company. I work for Kathy Fennell and everybody involved. Uh, as you well know, uh, we groomed these guys from college, fishing, high school, right on up. And, and it, was, it was just quite the honor just to have a small part of that puzzle that all the anglers that are in the sport highlighted right to this day started with us 85 percent of them so that's that's pretty good numbers jody yeah no no doubt that's for that's for sure um 
as far as uh, as far as your time with you know with FLW with later MLF, do you have any uh, like do you have any regrets? Do you have anything that you wish you'd done or you wish it worked or something like that? I mean, it could be as, sim- as simple as like, man, I wish we were still having big tournaments out west, or it could be something else, you know. <laughs> Well, uh, yes and no, uh, but the one was when we first started high school, um, and uh, my first reaction was, "Is how in the world are we going to make this happen?" Uh, I, I thought to myself, being selfish, I said, "Dad, gummit, I've got so much to do right now. There's no way I can do any more." And and then all of a sudden, I went to a high school event and I saw that, and. Um, I thought to myself, this is the greatest thing that we've ever done. Now, the college was designed by Charlie Evans and Kathy Fennell, plain and simple. So I had very little to do with that. But I also saw the need for the high school programs. Now, uh, we had an opportunity to take and run with it. Uh, and uh, the one thing that I saw there was is uh, we didn't do it as well as we probably should have. And what I mean by that is, is uh, we jumped into it pretty quickly. Uh, we allowed uh, uh, a third party to be involved in it, um, and I won't say who that is, but I wanted to see us have that completely under our control within the old FLW brand. Uh, and we allowed other organizations to come in and start before we really got our foot on the ground with it. But... Uh, we worked hard at it, and uh, we made it successful for what we were doing, but it could have been bigger and better, I think, if uh, we had had complete control when we first started that. Uh, but other than that, I see very few few items out there. You know, obviously, I had ideas that uh, weren't the best of ideas, and, and, you know, and everybody knows, and everybody's involved in any kind of business uh, can make suggestions. Uh, and it's a good thing they didn't accept those suggestions in the long <laughs> haul. But there's, there's everyone that's involved in the decision-making that somewhere that's the reason they're in that position, whether it's uh, in the industrial work or whether it's utility work or whether it's in bass fishing businesses, uh, suggestions from all staff and everybody that's in those positions they're going to have some they use and some they don't. And it's the ones that they do use that make you feel the best. So uh, you, you forget about those that you suggestions that would have been failures anyhow, and you move on. So uh, as a as part of that deal, it's it's uh, it's just you take what you get and you run with it and you do the best you can with it. If it works, it works. If it doesn't, then uh, you move on and try to improve that. So uh I'll never forget in the book that UPS had the owner of that company at that point in time, the one, the founder, Jim Casey, said, leave be those that work and work on those that don't. So uh, that's kind of the way I've done my uh, whole career, whether it's fishing, working at UPS, or in general. Uh, Leave be those things that uh, work and improve on those that don't. And so if people use that philosophy, I think we'll all be better off. I, uh, I hear you. Um, do you, uh, you know, since, um, I want to I wanna like kind of do some current events now. 
because there's I feel like a couple of burning questions in bass fishing yeah. now, and one okay. of them I think I know your answer to, but I'm interested in your perspective is forward facing sonar. You only just recently, like this year, actually got live scope, and I know you've started fishing with it a bunch. And there's a lot of people, especially folks, I would say, who watch bass fishing, who don't like watching guys fish with forward-facing sonar live. What what do you think about that topic? What do you think about, should it be allowed? Is it too good? Is it too boring? Or, you know, what's your, uh, what's your stance on that? Well, uh, obviously, uh, that's a good question, and... and uh... I want to address that, uh, and I'm glad you asked that question, okay? Uh, so let's just back up a little bit. So uh, I can remember when flipping uh, first uh, was introduced by D. Thomas in tournament angling. And it was everyone too good. said, well, <laughs> yeah, it was too good, too easy to catch fish. It penalized the guy that uh, wasn't running the front of the boat. It did this. Uh, it's too hard on the fish when you jerked on them. It was too. Uh, just unsportsman to to use a flipping stick and catch fish that way, and uh, some some uh, some uh, some organizations then declared, okay, well we're going to limit the rod length and we're going to do this, but as a as a rule, as it's always been in the sport, things like that come and they went, they some of them continued on as uh, techniques, but I'm for anything that grows a sport and i mean but what i mean by that is our our ability to catch fish if it's legal within a state regulation or anything that has to do with uh protection of the resource in itself i'm for that whether it was the a-rig that come out or whether it's forward facing sonar i'm for forward facing sonar big time and uh and not only Let's, let's get it out of the tournament aspect of it. So mom and dad wants to catch a bunch of crappie. There's nothing any better to use than forward-facing sonar when it comes to crappie picking. Nothing. Nothing compares to it. You can throw your mentals away now. Uh, then also it opens up, uh, sure, you know, the guys out there offshore fishing with forward-facing sonar the guys that doesn't do that, it opens up tons of water for them, uh, meaning uh, the bank beaters, so to speak, or just the guys that get out and use uh, uh, regular sonar. Uh, there's no difference in the way they fish because they're getting more areas like that to fish. So uh, any one of these guys that's against that, more than likely, uh, two things. Um, they want to make excuses because they can't compete at whatever level. The guys that compete at the highest of level, they're going to learn to do the things that makes it easier and better for them to fish, to catch fish and win, and consistently win. The same guys that won before are still winning, if you look at it. Uh, those guys adjust every technique out there, whether it's using the different size lures. I can remember when, if a guy threw a shaky head or a a four-inch worm, uh, they said, well, he's a sissy fisherman, so to speak. Not to say anything negative about sissies, but uh, I hope you get what I mean. Uh, 
Uh, they called them the sissy rods for using spinning rods. But those guys evolved, and now look what it does to be able to use lighter equipment and better rods and better line. And there's no difference in the sonar, Joe. Now, I think you'll agree with me 100%. Um, the people that pay for our sport, as far as tournament fishing goes, those are the guys that are so innovative. Whether it's the boat manufacturers, the trolling motor guys, the electronics, or whatever it is. Those guys have evolved with us, and and if you don't stay with the fishing part of it, then all those the best boats out there and the best trolling motors out there have no impact unless we all continue to grow with it. And I know people like Randy Blockett wants to do the backwater fishing and outlaw the forward facing sonar, but he's failed to evolve uh, people that are evolving. I, look at Michael Neal, how he's evolved. Look at Dustin oh, Carnell, yeah. how he's evolved. Uh, even even people like uh, uh, um, the best in the world and Kevin Van Dam. Look how he's had to change, but he's still competing big time. Now has he had a big victory? Probably I don't. I can't remember one, but but he still is the best out there. You know, top to bottom, no doubt about it. So uh, to answer your question, let her fly. I love mine. I love my forward facing sonar. Uh, I still use the uh, side structure substantially uh, to locate brush piles. Uh, you need all the tools, uh, you know, uh, especially especially if you have to fish uh, new waters all the time. And, you know, all the guys that found brush piles with their sonar, break their sonar or just placed them in the water, they still catch fish out of those same brush piles. They're just not using the forward facing. Uh, but I used it this past week down at Lake, uh, Smith Lake in that tournament. Uh, I found plenty of fish with it. Uh, was I able to utilize it? I caught two fish that, off of, of seeing them bite my lure, okay, out of the whatever we caught during hundreds practice. Hundreds you probably saw. Time. But the hundreds. Saw yeah. hundreds of them, and I knew where they were. They would chase my lure, and you understand that. It's because you got forward-facing sonar doesn't mean that those fish are going to take your lure. But it's it's a different ball game. But uh, I wouldn't take nothing for mine. I'll tell you that right now. Oh yeah, I've always said that I'll be fine if they ban it, just as long as I've got it before they do it. <laughs> Amen to that, brother. Amen um, to that. Yeah, I'm never I'm never getting rid of it. Uh, <laughs> um, what do you think then? This is sort of on the same subject, but you know, at that top level. Should, how much should we prioritize entertainment versus just letting the anglers compete, you know, as purely as possible, if that makes sense? Because one of the arguments, like I love live scope, but one of the arguments against it is, and even against smallmouth tournaments sometimes, is, man, it's boring. All these guys do is they stare down and they flip 10 feet in front of the boat and then they, and then they catch one and like, I want to see a fish bite a frog or a spinnerbait. What do you, do you think that, do you think that we should like try to, are, are there things we should do to try to make pro fishing more entertaining? Or do you think that that's, uh, that's not something that we should prioritize so much? Does that, does that make sense? Did I ask that in oh, a stupid yeah. way? Oh, <laughs> uh, no, no, you don't. And that's a good point. I, I, and I'll be honest with you as a tournament fisherman and as a, Long time, hard time, and I watch every minute of uh, on the water coverage of uh, about all the 
different companies. So, you know, I watch them all because I'm interested in just seeing who's doing well and all that. But, yes, uh, now, as for uh, entertainment on TV, uh, it could it can become just a little bit boring. There's nothing like a spook bite or a, or a surface lure strike by a great, great, great photographer, out, videographer out there. Oh, yeah, like uh, when you so, get a Mississippi uh, River tournament or like a buzzbait tournament uh, or something, oh, baby. Nothing any better, any yeah. better. And, you know, that's a good thing about uh, when I, I watch, and, and that, that brings to a point, too. Uh, I, I watch these guys that are really, really good offshore, and then all of a sudden they go to a lake, and they're still good. When Jacob Wheeler uh, sits out there and just – burns the bank with a buzz bait or something and watch those guys and watch how they sight fish and watch how they present a lure. I mean, it's phenomenal. Uh, so I think there's room for both. Uh, I, I don't like looking at the screen while I'm making a cast. I can't do that. Uh, the guys do it all the time and, and think nothing of it. But it, it's, not a, it's not an easy task to learn. The forward, forward, the forward facing sonar, as you well know, Jody. If you don't right, make the right cast, it's useless to you. I mean, you've got to learn everything there is to learn about that. I mean, it's it's not like that. You can just go out there and turn that thing on and catch fish. It ain't going to happen. Uh, you've got to learn how to use it, and and just like any other technique, you've got to perfect it. There's some guys that's really, really good with it, and there's some guys that's good at top water and so i just think there's room for all of it. i just like the idea though of uh uh seeing those fish people like to see big fish and uh you know uh i'm glad that major league fishing on the bass pro tour sets that uh, that certain limit on like a two pound limit uh you know what i'm saying for a mm-hmm. storable bass i like that and when it was 12 inches and 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 you know they learned too they learned real quick and then again, there's certain fisheries that hey, a twelve incher is a good one. Yeah. So for uh, you know, and again, even even the ones that uh, um, fish um, shallow, there's a lot of good footage that comes from that. There's a lot of good footage that comes from it, and I would say, and I don't know the numbers, but um, I would think that you probably know the numbers better than this. But I, I still think how all the pros out there. Uh, less than 50% are strictly uh, forward-facing sonar anglers. They're still going to bank beating and, and uh, all that, boat docks and things like that, and do pretty good at it. So, Yeah, I, I think I, that's I, definitely probably the case. And, like, yeah. you know, there's there's a lot of tournaments. Like, if you really don't want to watch forward-facing sonar tournaments, you can still probably watch half the tournaments in a year and – not even really have it be a factor, right? Because uh, amen. you're going go to amen. You're okay. gonna go to Florida. It's not going to be a thing there, most most likely. That's right. That's uh, right. If you have a tidal river or two, it's not going to be a thing there. Like, honestly, amen. next year's invitational schedule is maybe one of the most shallow water heavy schedules like I've ever seen. I, I mean, saw that. I, I agree with you 100%. And by the way, uh, they've got a great, great, great uh, – um, schedule out there, not only in the Bass Pro Tour, but uh, with the uh, new uh, uh, invitationals. Um, you know, they've got a great schedule. And again, there's not going to be, there's going to be a lot of shallow water fishing in all of those. And I'll tell you, I know, I know Michael Malone, 
and I know Chris Hoover, who sets most of those events up, okay? Those guys understand fishing, and they understand what viewers want, and they understand what they need to do to have a variety of lakes on all schedules, whether it's at BFL or whether it's at the college, high school level, whatever it is, they try to do the best they can to make sure there's a diverse fishery in that schedule. And that and that creates interest among all the anglers. Well, you know, you look at, let's just use uh, um, Lake Champlain, for example. You know, they know when to go there. And then they also know when to go to the Arkansas River. Uh, whether, you know, and so don't get your head set out there and say, well, I'm not only going, I'm only going to fish where I can use uh, forward facing sonar. There's always an opportunity to catch fish. I don't care where you go. And I think major league fishing and all their circuits have done a great job with their scheduling to make sure the fishers are diverse. Yeah, no, no doubt. But yeah, man, I, I look at, you know, the schedule for the invitationals next year. And Mm -hmm. all I can think is like, well, yeah, I would just probably hand the AOI to Andy Morgan. You know what I mean? Like, I'd give it to him at the first tournament. As long as he got a check at Okeechobee, I'd be like, here you go. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. That's right. And, Um, you know, uh, again, there's there's a a lot involved behind the scenes on making those schedules. And, and, And the good part about it is, if people would just sit and sit back and, and say, uh, okay, they know what they're doing, just let them do that part of it, and the, and the anglers just go fishing. All you got to do is just go fishing. Larry Nixon will tell you, just go to where the fish live and fish. That's all it is to it, folks. Just go to where they live and fish, and you're going to catch them. What was, so you're getting a little bit fired up about scheduling now, which I like. What was your, what was your least favorite part of the job? Well, uh, okay. <laughs> I didn't have a lease. I really enjoyed the scheduling part. Uh, whenever I was heavily involved uh, with that, uh, I, I chose the lakes, uh, and uh, and uh, we had the salespeople that talked to the communities and uh, got the contracts on when we would go there and why we would go there and what we'd do when we got there, as you well know. That was probably... Uh, one of my most favorite things that I did, but I guess the least favorite of all of it was uh, uh, whenever I was involved with uh, with the uh, the reps and and all that. Until we had someone uh, that got involved besides me, uh, like Aaron Hall and Charlie Hoover and those guys, and Charlie Evans always his name comes up. Uh, I hated that part of my job. I really did. It was a tough deal, but uh, I really and lo- I really loved uh, getting the schedules done. I really loved uh, setting up for the lakeside weigh-ins, making sure the I had the flow for parking, making sure that uh, I knew the water well enough to know where the off limits should be, knowing the water enough to know what the regulations were there. That's what I really loved about what I did. Uh, and then just sitting there watching the guys check in and talking to them at the weigh-in tubs and uh, giving Jody White or whomever a call and say, what's the fishing going to be like? How many flights I need to come up with to make sure there's not a bag line 100 miles long? And uh, those are the things I really, really love. 
Now, with that being said, the hardest part of my job was having to disqualify or penalize a person uh, for a rule violation. Now, I'm not talking about, uh, um, coming, uh, you know, not go, not following the rule with the no information rule. I'm not talking about that. That's easy. If a guy violates that rule, he deserves a penalty and a disqualification. But I'm talking about um, a guy that uh, uh, breaks down, breaks down on the water, and uh, uh, can't get back in. Or I'm talking about a guy that uh, makes a cast uh, too close to the off-limits area and makes one cast and calls Bill Taylor and says, look, I made a cast in there, and you have to disqualify that day's catch for that. Uh, I remember when if you broke down, you broke down, you couldn't ride in with another contestant and leave your boat on the water. You had to... uh, so we got around all of that where a guy could stay with the boat and send his fish in or whatever. Uh, that was one of the best rules I ever got into the organization, you know, because you don't want to leave a $70,000 boat floating out on the water out there. Just little th- simple things like that. And uh, the other part of the job that I hated was rumors. I hate rumors. Uh, for instance, a guy goes in and says, well, uh, I pulled the boat out of the water when I come back. Uh, had this happen? I actually, had it happen. The guy comes uh, uh, two weeks later and tells a buddy of his that yeah, the so and so pro changed my fish when I went to get the uh, uh, truck to back the truck in, and uh, so I got to give this particular guy a polygraph test. Who? adamantly denies that he ever would do that and, and adamantly denies that that happened and wanted to pretty much go after the co-angler and I held him back. But anyhow, he passed the polygraph with flying colors. He also passed a stress, force stress test with flying colors. Uh, the guy's a professional angler. and But at first, he just wanted to crash me. But later on, he become one of my best friends in the industry, and I'm not calling any names. But now to do have to put him through that process was hard, hard on him, hard on me, hard on all of us. And uh, the co-angler has since been banned for life and does not fish with us anymore. So uh, those things right there, people don't see that, but it happens from time to time, and that's one of the tough parts of that job. Uh, is really enforcing the rule and making sure that you do everything you can to figure out what's going on with it had happened. Uh, as you well know, uh, things can occur out on the water and have the pro just accidentally or whatever uh, come into the wrong area or, or run into a no-wake before he was unsure as to where the no-wake was. But you still have to enforce those rules, you know. So uh, it's it's tough, but uh, it has to be done. What did you think of the Lake Erie walleye situation? I'm sure that you've seen. I saw that, and you know, I'll be honest with you. You know, uh, we had a really, really uh, close type situation in one of our BFL events over on the North Carolina division, and uh, our our people that work for Major League Fishing. Even the part-time guys are phenomenal. They love doing what they're doing. And um, this particular guy was measuring fish and uh, felt something strange. And as they've always been instructed and trained to do, 
they brought it immediately to the tournament director's attention that something in this fish's belly uh, doesn't feel right. So the tournament director said, let's hold those fish. They went ahead and weighed them. Come to find out, they did a physical examination and found a weight in that particular fish's belly, much like the walleye. Uh, those, those, that angler has been banned for life, uh, and, and that caused him to be banned for 90% of all tournaments out there. So those things can happen, but, you know, our people were trained. They were trained to recognize things like that, but, uh, you know, uh, in sight fishing, to look to see if the fish had been uh, mishooked or, you know, foul hooked and things like that. So, But I think that's such a small percentage of what happens in the sport, very small percentage. Uh, we just have to do show trust in the anglers that do fish with us, but at the same time be aware of the fact that, hey, there's a possibility that uh, things can happen out there that shouldn't happen, meaning... Uh, just like that walleye deal. Uh, so. Yeah, there that's was... That's another thing. When you, yeah, I was oh, going to go say ahead. before you ask another question that any time there's anything uh, outside of food supply that goes in the fish's belly, uh, like a sinker or anything, that fish is going to react differently. It's going to soon die. It's not going to live. And so, uh, you know, uh, you can... If, if a trained individual is measuring or taking care and handling those fish, they can recognize those pretty quickly. Yeah, definitely. I mean, if you just think about how many fish your average, whoever is working a bump tank, feels mm-hmm. in a day, right? Mm-hmm. Like, it, that's the thing that's kind of shocking to me is that these walleye guys apparently got away with it last year and think and thought they were going to get away with it this year. You know, yeah, I, I thought the same I thing. I don't know how that could have ever happened. Uh, I, I, you know, I saw a picture of those fish, for instance, and they were everyone been dead for some time. Yeah. Uh, not only did they have weights in their belly, uh, but were they actually caught during that day's fishing? You know, that's the thing right there. I mean, you can look at a bass, and you can look at a walleye, you can look at a crappie, and you can tell how long it's been dead. Uh, and you can tell whether it's been in a uh, container uh, or for any length of time. You leave one in a holding tank, uh, in our holding tanks even overnight, or, you know, that you can tell that they've been somewhere they shouldn't be for multiple days or whatever. So I just encourage everyone that handles those fish during the tournament to be aware of any fish that looks unusual. And I think we can police that. I, I know that 99.9% of all of our tournament anglers are so adamantly against any sort of cheating, whether it's being out of the boat under a rule that says you can't fish without uh, uh, being in the boat, whether they uh, get out and stand on a dock and catch a fish. Uh, that's that's a, that's a cheating to me. And uh, um, just trying to figure out if those guys did that intentionally, did he make a cast intentionally, or did he do it just so he could get an advantage to try to catch a bed and fish or whatever? So uh, throughout the country, there's little situations, Jody, that uh, these anglers are going to go to the limits on to uh, to catch a, a, a fish, as you well know. But 99.9% of the people are honest. Unfortunately, that small, small percentage makes it look bad for the sport. Uh, and, and, and again, 
I don't think people see that as looking bad, as bad as uh, it is. You're just looking at a couple of crooks. Uh, they see that because those people that are still uh, tackle from you, it's the same deal. There's a small percentage of those people. They're going to do whatever they do. It don't matter if it's a rule against it, a tournament director against it, or the society against it. They're going to do that. Whether it's right or wrong, they're going to do the wrong thing. So, uh, yeah, I'm I think kinda, we just have to move on and forget about it. I'm kind of with you that I, I think that I don't 100% buy the idea that, like, it, guys cheating is bad for fishing because I think that it, I, I mean, obviously it's not good, but I, I feel like most folks, especially people that actually fish, that are likely to, you know, be involved in the sport going forward you know now going forward like they probably like you're not going out to your local tournament thinking that a whole bunch of folks there are cheating you know otherwise you just wouldn't fish them like i i think that i feel like we recognize it as a pretty isolated incident at least that's like my my outlook on it yeah i think i think for the most part most of the anglers are that way feel the same uh we're a special breed now you know when you stop to think about it you know, uh, of course, I'm big into sports and everything and have been my whole life. But uh, there's more cheating, and I'll call it cheating because they violate the so-called rules that are in place for all the different circuits and all the different sporting groups. But, I mean, it's proven fact. There's probably more cheating in, in uh, uh, competition uh, athletics than anything uh, out there including industry and, and businesses. Uh, those guys go beyond what they should sometimes uh, to get an advantage on their opponent. And I think, as you said, uh, I think that uh, people will move on with fishing, but the tournament fishing should not be affected like we used to think it was. You know, as you well know, due to our ability uh, through social media and social networking, uh, it used to be a, a guy could get by, uh, get caught cheating. Nobody would know about it. I mean, because they didn't have. It might be a local issue, but it would, it didn't go viral nationwide. Uh, now those things do, and uh, if it was really prevalent out there, this cheating thing, then you would see it daily on social media. I believe if we looked at it most terms, we'd say, "Hey, there's so much." It's so it's such a minimal occurrence that it's not even a factor in our sport. It's just a, some crooks out there uh, that uh, they don't use their damn brain, so to speak, uh, when they're out there. There, uh, but those same guys would cheat at whatever they did. They would steal. They would cheat. So uh, let's just say for this, and and uh, I think you'll agree with me. They're so isolated that it's not a factor in the tournament and in the world. So, yeah, I, I tend, I tend to agree. Um, that said, are there any like, are there any rule changes that you currently would like to, would like to see or like, wish that we had around fishing? I feel like the one of the ones that kind of gets the most play is like rules about info whether it's hiring a guide and this we've seen this in high school at high school level we've seen at the pro level 
you know, info, cutoffs, when you can be on the water. It seems like that's where there's, like, currently maybe the most gray area. What? Yeah. If you were going to design the perfect rule, what is it, do you think? Well, that's a good question. And uh, I'll tell you, I've had relatively good success in bass fishing. And I've never, ever gotten information from anyone that truly, truly helped me win an event, okay, first of all. In other words, there's some people can use information to their advantage. Uh, there's others like myself that can't. There's fishermen that will fish their way regardless of what everyone else is doing. They'll go to places that they know that uh, it suits them. Okay, with that being said, um, I think the information rule is the most uh, highly talked about rule out there. I think it's the most hardest rule out there to enforce. I think it's uh, so easy uh, for people to voluntarily give information to a, a tournament angler, whether it's in a tackle store or on social media, that they don't understand uh, that that could be a, a violation of rule. Uh, with that being said, uh, I see no difference in who's winning tournaments uh, locally, for instance, because they, uh, I fish a tournament organization called South Central Bass Association now. It's a great little mm -hmm. tournament trail. And uh, uh, guys pick up the phone all through the day and say, how many you got, Bill? Well, I got three. Well, I got two. I just talked to so-and-so, and he's got five already. Uh, I don't see that as an impact in any way, shape, or form. Now, what it does, it, it tells a guy, well, that guy's a jig fisherman. I need to start throwing a jig. Or that guy catches all his fish on a jerk bait. But really and truly, does it have any effect on the outcome? No, not really. Uh, but uh, I was never one for off limits, to be honest with you. I think if a guy wants to fish and go on a tournament uh, the weekend before the tournament's on that lake just to fish, I think he should be able to. Now, obviously, uh, uh, nowadays, uh, the... Uh, tournament organizations like the Bass Pro Tour or the um, MLF Invitationals and those like that or the BFL Regionals uh, the anglers prefer those rules more than the tournament directors or the tournament organizations and due to the fact that we try to listen to what our anglers out there want, what they need to make the sport more uh, fair, then you have to have certain rules like that because you do want to listen to the anglers so yeah uh, I, I think that that's one of the important things is like the obviously it it's important to market fishing and like you've got to you know the organization is running the tournament but at the end of the day the the players you know in the sport are the anglers and if the if they want to, if they have a set of rules in mind that they would prefer to play with, like that's kind of what it should be. If you can get that yeah, it, and make that happen, you know. Yeah, I, I agree with that 100. percent And uh, you know, you uh, it's good for all, all tournament organizations to have their own their own uh, agenda, so to speak. 
and they want to be the ones to run their tournaments the way they want to run them. And then they present rules out there as they are. If they refuse to listen to the anglers, that's one thing. Uh, uh, but our company has always uh, had an open-door policy. And, I, and I'm sorry, even though I'm retired, I refer to it as our company. I still feel a big part of it. Yeah. But um, uh, I admire uh, Major League Fishing and all their staff that listens. Whether it's a guy on the release boat uh, and a guy brings up a suggestion, they should listen uh, how they could handle those fish better. Or whether it's uh, the MC. Uh, uh, or whether it's Jody White writing articles. Uh, we all listen. You know that. And that's the ways in the companies grow. They listen to what their customers need and want. Uh, just because Bill Taylor doesn't like the uh, off-limits, uh, it works good for the best pro tour or the uh, best master elites or whatever. I, I'll just say it like it is. Uh, if you don't listen to them, then you're missing the boat. Is there a particular rule change over the last few years that you can point to that was really angler-driven that you either like a lot now or, you know, didn't like at the time and, and like now? Well, uh, probably, there's, uh, yeah, I'm sure there is, Jody. Um, I'm sure there's some rules that I didn't like to begin with uh, that turned out to be a blessing in disguise. I, um I don't like uh, any tournament rule that takes uh, a penalty to the uh, ungodly uh, max. In other words, each each rule, whether it's well, first off, I don't like a rule that states in some tournament organization that if you've ever been disqualified for an event, you can't fish our event. Well, there's a big difference in being banned and being disqualified. Yeah. Uh, if you've been disqualified, what was it for? Why did you get disqualified? Was it because you brought six fish instead of five in? Was it because you run a no wake zone in the dirt? Uh, so there is some tournament organization that won't allow guys to fish with them because they were disqualified from another tournament. There's a big dis, uh, there's a big difference there. So uh, I don't know that there's a rule out there that comes to mind uh, that. Uh, that um, when it first started, I didn't like it um, and learned to like it. Uh, I guess because uh, those, if you don't like it, we always had the opportunity to change it. Right. So I yeah, guess you we, could adapt it. Yeah, we adapted that rule, like the A rig. Uh, I was, man, I was adamantly for the a Alabama rig, and then, but we come up with a good working plan between Dave uh, Ma uh, Dave Washburn and uh, Kathy Fennell and. All the other tournament directors, we come up with a workable deal. Um, the the the, the three hooks, circuit five court, wires. Yeah, I mean that yeah. that helped everybody except the ones that uh, didn't want it, which was the pros. Anyhow, uh, we said okay, no no a rig uh, at that level, and then we every all the other circuits, the guys were uh, uh, for keeping it, and we made adjustments to it, and man, it's worked beautifully. Yeah, I would, I would honestly, if one thing I would like is I would like to see the pros be allowed to throw the, the A-Rig. I am, I'm very pro umbrella rig, <laughs> but I'm a, I, I watch them all the time. I watch, uh, I, one of the best shows I watch sometimes on TV, uh, other than the on the water live is, is on us show, right? George, he uses that A-Rig, uh, Ot Defoe uses it all the time to catch those monster bass. 
um, I watch Kevin Van Dam do articles and, and commercials using the E-Rig, and I like it. Uh, it's one of my favorite lures, but it ain't a surefire way to catch them every time. You've got to know the pattern they're on and how to rig it and how deep to fish it and how to get unhung with it and everything. So, uh, and what type of line to use. So, uh, but I like the uh, A-Rig type. Thing. I, I like lure innovations. Um, uh, I like to, now I'll tell you one I am against, and I don't know what your feelings on this. These guys, it's got the big six inch flutter spoon and then they put a big old five alt stinger hook and they sit and out there looking at them on live and they jerk and jerk and they jerk hard and they snag those fish. Uh, I'm not a very a, a big component. Uh, uh, I'm not a. I don't like that one. Uh, that's one. That, that's one lure adjustment and one lure that I, I'm adamantly against. Uh, uh, but um, to me, that's snagging fish intentionally. Even though they say, "Well, that's the way I work my lure," you know. So. Yeah, well, I, I could see that. I could. I think that you could limit it. I think it's a very exciting lure, especially that first tournament it came out in. But yeah. we've kind of we've kind of gone to where it's a vehicle for more hooks a little bit yeah. than it is just the lure, if that makes sense. So I would uh, I could see refining yeah. that one some. Yeah, yeah. And again, there's not a lot of that out there, but that's one of them that bring, uh, comes to mind that I'm uh, I'm kind of against. So uh, cool. you know, you got the you got the sight fishing rule. You, must be caught in the mouth. Uh, is live scoping forward imaging? Is that sight fishing? Uh, just because you see it on the bed, that if you see it on the bed and you're fishing for it, that's sight fishing. If you see it swimming and you see it, that's sight fishing to me. And uh, so there's no difference in the forward imaging being a, a sight fishing. Uh, is it or is it not? It needs to be addressed, you know. And of course, uh, that come about uh, just in the last couple of few years. So I don't know how many other people saying the same. And really shouldn't have even said this, but that, that's how I feel about it personally. It's not a company policy. That's a, how I feel about it. Okay? Yeah, that that seems like one that we're gonna probably run up against more in the coming years as it gets probably. better and better. Because I would say with like regular live scope i mean gosh if you're snagging bass on that like more power to you i don't know how like that is like doing some things especially a small mouth like they move yeah. around so much some, something like that maybe it's a little different if it's in a brush pile but yeah it, but at the same time it's gonna get better and better and if you know the fish is right there and you can present a bait to it a few times I mean, you could definitely get your odds to where it's something that might work. Um, so, yeah, I don't know. I I haven't thought about that one because one, like, one of the things that I like about not being a tournament director is uh, the rules don't have a lot of stakes for me because, like, I just, I don't even always have to know all the rules. I'm like, yeah, well, just go for it, boys. And, you know, I hope you, <laughs> I'm going to watch what happens. <laughs> um <laughs> You know, I know the rules of the tournaments I fish. Uh, yeah, that's right. No, um, you're exactly right. Again, again, uh, you know, that's a, probably of all the points we brought up. Those those things are the reason we fish certain organizations. And uh, you know, you look at the rules and you read the rules. 
And the first thing you do is not call your buddy about a rule. You call the tournament director. If everyone would go that direction, call the tournament official and say, look, uh, I got a question about this. How do you enforce that? And then we'd all be better. Then they wouldn't be a, a violation of a rule through uh, a brain fart or so, whatever you want to refer to it as, because 98% of all rule infractions are not, they're, they're unintentional. You don't yeah. you don't rule intentionally. There's probably several that have been over the years, but but for the most part, is and I think you'll agree. I think most of yours will, will, uh, listeners will, will agree with this. You don't you don't intentionally violate a rule. I mean, I'd say ninety percent of every rule violation I've had to enforce has been unintentional. Yeah, I I would say that's probably true, um, for sure. You asked a good. Question there uh, earlier, and, uh, and a rule that I got in that I was very proud of was it used to be, uh, and it happens all the time. The the the, the limit for the creel limit for the, an event is five. But how many times, Jody, have you heard of a guy catching that six fish and continuing fishing? Mm-hmm. And they do it. They do it not thinking. They just so caught up. Well, it used to be a disqualification. I saw it. We disqualified multiple people from a hundred thousand dollar event over that rule. And yeah. finally, I said, "Look, let's 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 change that. Let's let's look at that and say, okay, what what penalty? How can we work around that?" Um, and we finally come up with a rule that says, "Hey, it's a two pound penalty. You release that same fish, and uh, uh, one of the fish, uh, whatever the." Whatever the rule reads now, I, I don't know. I don't want to quote it per, per se because I'm not involved in the rule enforcement. But it got a two-pound penalty. You went back to fishing. A well, two-pound penalty is a pretty good penalty when you're not determined. And so yeah. rather than that, so I'm, I'm proud that I was instrumental in getting that rule changed. If I was going to change that rule, I would change it to a smaller penalty. I would drop it down to a pound or even six ounces. I... Just because it, it seems like so many like legitimate, very upstanding anglers are pretty bad at math and can get caught up in the moment. Oh, that's what I'm saying, and uh, and and I don't disagree with that. Now, uh, you know, uh, the objective in any rule is to make the playing field fair. Now, with that being said, if a guy carried such a low penalty, uh, now this is just my opinion, Jody, but if it was a let's just say a uh, a, a four ounce. Well, there's a penalty for a dead fish, and they would put an extra fish on that. You see what I'm saying? So yes. there would be a, a you could gain an advantage by keeping the extra fish if one died. Now, it's got to be always, higher than the dead fish, or it have to be. Yeah, I to say. Yeah, I yeah. can see going a pound penalty or a. Uh, eight ounce penalty, but not a for not whatever for a, a. It has to be higher than the dead fish pounds. Let's put it that way. And I think Kathy Fennell and the guys that make up uh, uh, all the rules in the BFL and the college and all that, I think they understand that part of it. Yeah, no, I but, I think so. Um, yeah. For all sure. right, I tell you, you've got some good questions. I wish I had better answers sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> Well, Bill, I tell you what, we've been on the phone for an hour and 40 minutes now. Um, oh, my and, goodness. I wonder my arm's got cramps in it. 
Yeah, uh, and you like probably have things to do, and I know I'm supposed to go to the dump here in a little while. Um, is there anything uh, you want to wrap up with? Anything that you know is on your mind that you uh, you want to get out, or anything like that? And then uh, after that, I think we'll call it a day on this. Okay. Well, yes, Joe, there is. And one of them is, is I really, really appreciate my opportunity I had, uh, first given to me by Charlie Evans and Kathy Fennell, and secondly, uh, to the folks at Major League Fishing, Boyd Duckett, Jim Wilburn, and all the entire staff at uh, Major League Fishing. They've been a great, great, great help to me in this retirement. I appreciate the opportunity to be on your podcast. Uh, I'll continue to support tournament fishing, whether it's the Bassmasters or the Fishermen of Men, uh, whomever it is. Uh, uh, the sport has been good to me, and uh, everyone that I've worked with, from the service technicians to the boat manufacturers to the uh, non-endemic sponsors, uh, I want to say a special thank you to them. Uh, they've always showed respect to me. I've been blessed, and I really appreciate the opportunity that I had. Thank you, folks, for what you did to get me to it. A great career. All right. Well, Bill, thanks so much for coming on, and I uh, can't wait the next time I get to see you at a tournament. Uh, See you soon, Jody. You're always a pleasure. Thank you.